0: Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you are looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. Tonight we're going to be talking about the final piece of armor, the sword of the spirit. I say final because it's final in the list, not of least importance. It's actually one of the more important things we have. And so how we've been doing this is we've been talking about a couple of physical properties of the sword and then the spiritual application of why the sword is important to us as believers in christ and so the on the on the physical end i want to remind us the reason that paul is using this analogy for the soldier is because everybody there is familiar with how the roman soldiers dress they're familiar with their armor with their shield with the things they wear on their feet the spikes that are through those pieces of, of, of leather that are strapped to their ankles. They have um, a certain type of helmet, a curved shield. We've talked about all these things. In the same way that me and you would think today when you say military, or if you're a gamer, a Call of Duty person, you know what I mean? Like a helmet and a AR-15 or an M16 and combat boots and a helmet and fatigues and a Ruck Pack, that we're all familiar with that. That time period is equally as familiar with um, the roman soldiers and what they wear so that's why he's using this analogy so when we think soldier let's don't think american modern soldier but think the roman soldier and how they operated okay so the soldier's sword first line of your notes the sword was called the gladius and had a ridged handle ridged handle for the soldier's fingers to grip um, it was not a smooth handle. If you've uh, fired a firearm, there's some of them that have smooth handles. Some of them have ridges so your fingers can lock in easier. Um, this was a ridged handle because they were in all types of environments, rain. Sometimes they fought in snow. There's blood. There's sweat. There's a lot of things to go into um, that, that thing coming out of your hand. And they wanted to make sure that they had a firm grip on the sword. Okay? Okay. The second line the gladius this sword was shorter in length measuring 18 is the first line the next one's to 24 18 to 24 inches and it was intended for use in crowded areas or while in military formation now if you talk to me um about sword fights i immediately think of movies right like Star Wars, like laser swords, is that the wrong one? Is that Indiana Jones? Did I get it right? Yeah, I mixed it too. Thank you, Ryan, Um, (laughs) our resident uh, expert on the Star Wars stuff. Um, But I always think of stuff like um, uh, Lord of the Rings. Like the movie, you know, like Braveheart or some kind of thing like that, where the handle itself is like two feet and then the sword's like five feet and it makes this big whoosh when they swing it around and they're chopping things and all that kind of stuff. This is not the picture of the Roman soldier. This, this gladius, this sword, is 18 to 24 inches, a foot and a half to two feet long, and it was, it was um, designed to be a massively destructive weapon. Next line of your notes the sword was also double-edged double-edged to inflict major damage now i always wondered what this double-edged meant as a kid and i figured this out later on that um if you don't know what double-edged means let me explain to you real quick how my mind would process it um anybody in here a steak person yeah steak people okay so you know what a steak knife is right most christians are steak people That's a side note, that's not a note, it's just a free little messenger for you. Um, There's a steak knife, right? And on one side, it's sharp and edged. That's single-edged utensil. The double-edged has that equally sharp bow on every side, on both sides. This was so that they could thrust the sword into the midsection of their enemy and move in any direction and damage massive deadly damage happened on any direction. It wasn't like you could only swing it this way because it only had one sharp side. You go back and forth however you needed to and thrusting and penetrating was important to their war style, the style of their warfare and so both sides needed to be sharp. Um, So this was a massively destructive tool and these guys were trained specifically on how to handle sword so let's move from the physical sword to the spiritual application paul's getting at here and what i'm going to call the believer's sword the sword of the 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 sword of the spirit i want to look at five things really quickly that the sword of the spirit um does for us as believers and as people who follow god so the next line you know it's the believer's sword is the word of god How do we know that? Verse 17. Take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Scripture is the sword of the spirit. That is what he's talking about here. So number one of the five things we're going to go through tonight that the sword does for believers. Okay? The sword, number one, it exposes us. It exposes us. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 12 through 13 for the word of God is alive and powerful it's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword cutting between soul and spirit between joint and marrow. it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires nothing in all creation is hidden from God everything is naked and exposed before his eyes and he is the one to whom we are all accountable. I don't know how sharp something has to be to divide two invisible things, soul and spirit, but it better be pretty sharp. Like I've seen these like Japanese blades that have been worked on for a long time. Like they hold straight out and they lay like a piece of cloth or paper across it and it just, they don't even hit it. It just falls and just, it's so sharp, it just se- it separates. That is nothing in comparison to what he's trying to describe here. He's telling us, that I, in, in kind of a metaphor and, or analogous sense that this does a deep work. So next line in your notes. Scripture gets down to the root of our actions and intentions. Scripture gets down to the root of our actions and intentions. It doesn't take into consideration the excuse you gave for what you did. It takes into consideration the real intent That lies in the dark crevices of your heart, the real intention of why you did that thing. The reason you acted in that way or talked in that manner. It may be because, oh, I'm presenting this reason, but there is a real reason that's down in our heart. And scripture gets all the way past that nonsense, all the way to the root, and exposes it. What that means is a little on a little more personal level, next line in your notes. God can see past your lips and read your heart. God can see past your lips and read your heart. Now, our secret intentions that we have, that are really going on inside of our heart, these secret intentions aren't exposed to God because we read the Bible. He already knows them. They expose how deep and hideous and gross our flesh is to us. It exposes us to the truth. And when we look at our life in comparison to the truth of the gospel, we see we knew we were bad and we kind of glossed over some things. But when we look at those specific things that we did, that we said, that we acted, that we consumed, the places that we went, the things we watched, the things that we participated in, whatever that is, the deeper you get into scripture, the more realized I was further gone than I knew. It exposes to you Just how devastating following your flesh can be. And increases your understanding of God's mercy and grace. Because he knew just how bad it was long before we did. And he still loves you. It doesn't expose it to him. He already knows. It exposes it to us. Because we take our rotten, nasty, flesh and put it against the purity of his son the purity of his word and we realize i could never earn it back i can't we realize just how exposed we are to god when we read scripture next on your notes scripture reveals if we are living up to god's standard that's the first thing it does it exposes us number two in your notes the next thing that the sword of the spirit the word of god does is it keeps us it keeps us i want to read this passage and then talk about four quick ways that this the word of god keeps us and that um this passage is psalms 119 9 through 16 this is the psalmist the songwriter it's a Uh, uh, What we would classify in today's um, uh, society as an artist talking to God. How can a young person stay pure? By obeying your word. I've tried hard to find you. Don't let me wander from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I praise you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. I've recited aloud all the regulations you've given us. I have rejoiced in your laws as much as in riches. I will study your commandments and reflect on your ways. I will delight in your decrees and not forget your word. How does the word of God keep us? There's four little bullet points real quick. The first one is this. It keeps us pure. It keeps us pure. How do we know? First line of that passage, how can a young person stay pure? By obeying your word. His word keeps us pure. The next thing, next bullet point, two words, it keeps us on track. It keeps us on track. Next line of the passage, I've tried hard to find you. Don't let me wander from your commands. If you told me to go north on the I-17 in the middle of the summer, hallelujah, to get away from this sweltering heat so I can get up to Prescott and be in the shade of the pine trees, do not let me pull off on Happy Valley Road or Cave Creek or any of those roads and stay down here because you've instructed me to move away from a place that I'm trying to get away from. Keep me on track, following your directions, following your guidelines, not taking any of these off-ramps, If I do, there's grace to get me back on, but I don't even want to experience that. Keep me on track. How do we do that? His word. The third thing, third bullet point. It keeps us from sin. It keeps us from sin. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might impress all of my non-Christian and Christian friends, that I can recite chapter and verse of all these words and that were in the Bible. Oh, no, that's not it. That's (laughs) the... That's the american church version here we go the real version says i've hidden your word in my heart that i might not sin against you that i might not sin against you why are we trying to remember his word so we know what's right and wrong we know his commands and it keeps us from sinning against him and the last thing the fourth point it keeps us focused I've recited aloud all the regulations you've given us. I've rejoiced in your law as much as in riches. I will study your commandments and reflect on. Your ways. Reflecting on his ways means I'm stopping what I'm doing. I'm eliminating distractions. I'm not studying like I do in high school or the first part of college where I'm just trying to pass the test and I'll never use any of this stuff again ever in my life, which was my situation, maybe not yours, but w- which I just kind of wanted to get through the test and move on and not remember any of the things. He's saying, don't just study to accomplish something or check off some test on your box study it and then think about it reflect on it focus on his word give it time after you pray to sit there with it silence is not a bad thing in your prayer time it's not you get to listen and meditate on his word it keeps us focused this, is not, this message is not an attempt to get all of us to make some crazy commitment to memorize chapter and verse from the front of the Bible to the end and know everything in a certain translation, how it all goes, and, and that's going to be the goal of your life. No. Why? Next on your notes, knowing chapter and verse scripture references doesn't earn us bonus, bonus points in heaven. Knowing chapter and verse scripture references doesn't earn us bonus points in heaven. You cannot earn God's grace or entrance into his kingdom. That is a work of grace. However, you might, you might stop for a second and go, Matt, it sounds like you're telling me not to memorize scripture. Oh, no. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I am saying that it's more important to understand what the scripture is communicating then have the ability to pop it off in your favorite version line by line word by word not missing a word not knowing what any of that means i just was able to recite it it doesn't say i was able to recite your word so i might not sin against you it says i've hidden it in my heart i have to remember it if you memorize a chapter and verse great i hate you but great right <laughs> like i don't i don't hate you it's just I i can't do that I want you to memorize his words, but I want you to understand what's being communicated before the excellence of the recital. It's got to be hidden here so you don't sin against him. Knowing what those words mean, what our responsibilities are, and how God's word is implemented in our life is vital. Why? Because it keeps us. It keeps us the third thing sort of the spirit does it defends us, it defends us <clears throat> after Jesus was baptized and before he started his ministry, he had a time where he was led into the wilderness for a temptation and a trial, and this is uh outlined in these next ten verses we're going to go through real quick, Matthew four verses one through ten, but we're going to pause in between a couple of them so Um, Let's read about what happens to him before he starts his ministry. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. I have not fasted 40 days and 40 nights, but I think if I did, very hungry would be an understatement. I'm pretty sure. So he's massively, massively hungry. During that time, the devil came in and said to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, no. The scriptures say, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Next on your notes. Jesus knew and used scripture. Jesus himself knew and used scripture. Let's keep going and see what happens next. This one will really really cook your noodle. Matthew chapter 4, 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, If you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, he will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Then Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, You must not test the Lord your God. Did you see what happened right there? Next line in your notes. The enemy, the enemy knows scripture, but distorts it, distorts its meaning and uses it to serve self. The enemy knows scripture, but distorts its meaning and uses it to serve self. Your enemy is cunning and deceptive and very well practiced at fooling human beings. And it is, there is no tactic that's beneath his dignity including trying to take a lie, dip it in a thin candy shell of the truth and try to get you to bite. That includes twisting God's word. We live in a time like I have not seen before where people twist his word to no end. We have to know when it's being twisted. Next, sign in your notes. We must be familiar enough with scripture so that we can recognize when it's being twisted and abused. we must be familiar enough with scripture so that we can recognize when it's being twisted and abused if we know it and use it correctly it can defend us when someone uses it the wrong way number four we must or no i'm sorry it um the next thing that it does is it arms us. It arms us. John 14, 23 through 26. Now, I'm going to take a couple little steps to get to the end here, but I I want you to follow me. This is what Jesus is telling his followers and his disciples. Jesus replied, all who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them and we will come and make our home with each of them. Anyone who doesn't love me will not obey me, and remember, my words are not my own. What I'm telling you is from the Father who sent me. I'm telling you these things now while I'm still with you, but when the Father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. The word of God and its use as the sword of the spirit is not dependent upon the excellence of our memory. It is dependent upon the Holy Spirit reminding us of the things we have already heard and put in us before we need it. Next line in your notes. The Holy Spirit will cause us to remember his word when we need it. How does that work? Um, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. You probably will if you're a young believer and haven't had it yet. It's coming one day. But you're going to be, if you've walked with God for any length of time, and you've sat and had somebody want to talk to you one-on-one or had a group discussion of some kind, and someone brings up a question about, the Bible or about God or about life or about love or about this social issue and how it intersects with the church and all this kind of thing and as you're sitting there listening you're thinking man what could I say to be profound or I'm listening to this I'm trying to understand what this question is I'm trying to understand what their perspective is in the middle of that all of a sudden it's like somebody took the lid off this deep well and pulls this scripture up and it sits right on your heart and you're like oh my gosh I haven't read that scripture probably in two years. That's the Old Testament. I've been in the New Testament for the last little bit. I heard this scripture in a message six months ago and haven't really thought about it since. But it pops up in that moment. Because here's what's happening. You are trying to correct or answer or eliminate a lie of the enemy. A lie of the flesh. A lie that is coming about that could sit incorrectly in someone's understanding and create a whole false belief. When the Holy Spirit reminds you of something, get this picture. He's basically unsheathing your sword and handing it to you. Hey, use this one. Cut low on this one, not high. It'll work better. In this particular scenario go straight don't go roundabout. go straight at it here's the scripture you're not attacking the person you're dealing with the influence on the mind and heart of an unbeliever that is from the enemy the whole when the Holy Spirit reminds us of scripture he's handing us the sword and telling us how to use it in a specific instance so Jesus tells his disciples, his followers, this is what's going to happen to all of you. Death, burial, resurrection. He appears to several hundred people after his death, or after his resurrection. He appears to several hundred people. Um, He ascends into heaven, and he tells the disciples, go and wait in the upper room, which is nothing more than an upstairs room on a home. Until the Holy Spirit comes the Holy Spirit comes fills them empowers them and they start going out and preaching everywhere and Saul who is also known as Paul travels with a guy named Barnabas and they decide let's go to that island over there it's surrounded by water no one can get away from us so we're gonna preach there so they go to the island of Cyprus and they start going from town to town to town preaching so watch what happens Acts chapter 13, verse 6 through 12. Afterward, they traveled from from town to town across the entire island until they finally reached Paphos, where they met a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He had attached himself to the governor, Sergius Paulus, who was an intelligent man. The governor invited Barnabas and Saul to visit him, for he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, as his name means in Greek, interfered and urged the governor to pay no attention to what Barnabas and Paul said. He was trying to keep the governor from believing. Very important. We're going to come back to that. Saul, also known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit. There it is. The Holy Spirit's rising up in him. And he looked the sorcerer in the eye and he said, You son of the devil full of every sort of deceit and fraud, an enemy of all that is good. Will you never stop perverting the true ways of the Lord? Watch now, for the Lord has laid his hand of punishment upon you, and you will be struck blind. You will not see the sunlight for some time. Instantly, mist and darkness came over the man's eyes, and he began groping around, begging for someone to take his hand and lead him. When the governor saw what had happened he became a believer no kidding me too and for he was astonished at the teaching about the lord if you just watch all that unfold it'd be like yep i'm rolling with you i believe that so what did jesus say to his followers the holy spirit's going to come he's going to remind you of the things i said paul was not there when jesus said that we don't have any indication in scripture That he ever met Jesus. He was a young man when Stephen was stoned. And he grew into someone who would eventually kill a whole bunch of Christians. This is after Christ died and resurrected. Paul didn't hear those words. Somebody told him. What Jesus said. And they told him the words of God. And they stuck with him. And in that moment. Paul fills with the Holy Spirit. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. The top comes off, and he remembers. Jesus told his disciples, this is how I deal with these spirits. We have been given power over these things, and so he deals with the man on a temporary, on a temporary level. He's blind. He doesn't say he's permanently blind. He says he's blind for, you won't see sunrises for a while. That means there's going to be an end to this. There's there are repercussions to your actions. However, what he's really dealing with is the influence. The spiritual influence behind the man who is trying to do one thing. What was the line I said we we're going to come back to? He was trying to prevent him from, he, from becoming a believer. The chief job of our enemy is to prevent people from becoming a believer. And one of his most effective strategies is shutting us up. One of his most effective strategies, let me use the analogy, is convincing you, don't pull that sword out right now, it's not the right time. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to listen. They're going to mock you if you tell them the truth. You step out and say, I'm a believer in Jesus, and that's not what the Bible says. I'm sorry that's been your experience in a quote-unquote church, but the Bible I read and the the God that I serve doesn't act like that. He doesn't say that. He doesn't do whatever the thing is that that was done wrong to you. That's not how he operates or instructs us as his children to operate. No, don't say all that. Keep that sword in it's sheath. He tricks us. Why? Because we want to be liked. I don't want people to look at me funny. I don't want people to look at me and be like, bro, again, it was this Jesus thing again. I already told you I'm not coming to your church. No problem. What is the goal? To intimidate us into keeping God's word to ourselves. you've been armed with God's word the goal of the enemy and the one who the enemy influences is to prevent he was trying to keep the governor from believing but Paul and Barnabas engage in true spiritual warfare and you may have grown up in church and heard that phrase a lot But spiritual warfare is not shouting at demons. Spiritual warfare never results in people in a room looking at you and going, dang, that dude's got a gift. When that guy prays, it's powerful. It's like the kingdom of hell is shook. I'm going to listen to him from now on if any spiritual warfare ends with the glorification or the celebrating of a man it is wrong next sign in your notes spiritual warfare should result in freedom that leads to salvation it results in freedom that leads to salvation we just saw Saul, or Paul, and Barnabas do this. What did he do? He dealt with the principality, the power, the spiritual influence that was at work trying to keep the governor from hearing the gospel. He deals with that. That's spiritual warfare. Shut him up. Present the truth. And what happens? Somebody responds to the gospel and is saved. Am I saying that you don't continually pray for the freedom of a family member, a friend, or a loved one, or of a city, or anything like that. Not at all. But that prayer should be that every person becomes free from the lie, the stronghold, the blockade, the ignorance, whatever it is that's preventing them from seeing the gospel clearly and becoming a believer. We have people in our culture who have made a ton of money And in a a massive career and become best-selling authors trying to teach people that they understand the right way to deal in spiritual warfare the right way to anoint the doorpost the right way to say a thing I'm not telling you those things are inherently wrong in and of themselves but no man has the secret you have been equipped with God's Word you have been given the power of the Holy Spirit every single one of us has been called into this life of a soldier by our enlisting officer who is Jesus Christ himself you have been given armor you have been given a sword so go put it to use for what purpose so that people will be free to know Jesus the goal is not for them to look at me and be like I want to go to that church no because if it results in applause for me guess what it gets them nowhere you just built upon a foundation that will not last. It won't. Salvation, the work of spreading the gospel, bringing other people from darkness to light, taking the truth of Jesus. The hope, the joy of serving him into the life of people who are bound in their sin. They're bound with a lie. They're bound from hurt. Whatever they're bound from, it doesn't matter. When we deal in spiritual warfare, it should lead to freedom that leads to an opportunity for salvation. You don't kick the devil's butt by screaming at his workers. You, you go crazy on him when you take the gospel to somebody. Why? Why do all the angels in heaven rejoice when one person gets pulled out? Why? Because they know the enemy just suffered a loss. You have been given. His word. He has armed you with it. So use it. Matt, kind of freaking me out here, man, talking about the spiritual warfare stuff. Like I, I don't get up at night and not turn on the light if I gotta go to the bathroom and it's late. I don't walk through my house because I'm a little nervous. Sometimes at when it's dark. I like open the door and Jesus help me if it's dark, because I need to make it to the first light switch. I'm kind of nervous on this spiritual stuff you're talking to me about. And how am I supposed to know if scriptures have been twisted? How am I supposed to know that if the enemy is using it incorrectly against me? How do I know if the, the person, the pastor, the preacher, the minister, the teacher, whoever it is, even me... How do I know that it's being presented to me correctly, that I'm learning it the right way? How in the world am I supposed to know that it's when it's been used out of context and in context? How am I supposed to know what to say to unbelievers who question Jesus? How am I supposed to engage in the spiritual warfare? There is a three-word answer that is massively profound, and it's the next three lines in your notes. And I put a period after every word for dramatic effect. You ready? Here's how you do that. The first word is read. You probably know where I'm going. Period. Second word, the. Period. Last word, Bible. Period. Period. Matt, you're telling me? That if I just read this thing, even if there's parts of it that I don't understand and i got to ask questions about later, you're telling me that if I just read this thing, it's going to help me? Yes, number five, because the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, number five, it equips us. It equips us. How do we know? Second Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all Scripture, all Scripture, all of it not just the new testament not just the old testament not anyone who argues about what books should be in there all scripture is inspired by god and useful to teach what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives it corrects us when we are wrong and teaches it teaches us to do what is right god uses it to what prepare and equip his people to do every good work the church participates in this preparation this is why if you listen to anybody who's claiming to be christian blogger you know youtuber uh podcaster minister a church in the future you ever go to if you're not here or move to some other city or whatever happens you have to make sure that what they're teaching is not good advice is not a little motivational thing doesn't lather you up to kind of wash you off so you can see clearly and rush you back out there and then slap a bible verse on it on the way out and then come back in and then have to do it again no it has to be rooted in god's word why because that is what equips us we have to present God's word so all of us know what is right and wrong. We know what to do. We know where it, 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 uh, it's, um, it's a light into our feet, a lamp into our path. We have to be based on scripture. Doesn't mean you don't have a word uh, that you can't use your own words. Doesn't matter. You don't have to talk in King James, thus saith. No, none of that. But it equips you. This is a quote from Polybius, a Greek historian, who wrote of Rome's rise to world prominence. Listen to what he says about the soldier. There, the legionary, or the soldier, also called the gladiator, is thought of primarily as a swordsman. Charging forward into the enemy and using his sword to thrust rather than slash. Next on your notes, the word gladiator comes from the Greek word gladius which literally means swordsman. It literally means the guy who is trained how to use the sword. Without the sword, the very name gladiator is a joke. It's false. How can you be called the gladiator, the guy who's trained to be a swordsman, and don't carry the sword? What kind of swordsman carries no sword with him? Let me ask a real pointed, direct question. What kind of believer carries no scripture in them? If you're somebody who says, Matt, I'm not really familiar with the Bible. I've been walking with Jesus for a long time, but I don't read a whole lot. You're all right. People, people are at different levels of coming along to do that. I'm not here to whip you. I'm not here to give you a sasa if you're Polynesian, a whipping if you're from the, you know, from the South, or to tell you to go to timeout if you're from California. If it, I'm not here to do any of those things to you. Some of y'all get that joke on the way home. <coughs> um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry, Paul. Paul's here. My bad. i got to cut out the California jokes. He lives here now. Welcome, Paul. Um, I'm not here to give you a whipping. I'm not here to smack you and be like, what kind of believer are you that doesn't read your Bible? No, I'm telling you, maybe you didn't know that you were supposed to be trained on how to use God's word. Why do you come here to learn God's word? What are we supposed to be teaching from this mic, from behind this, this makeshift pulpit or or whatever? What, What are we supposed to be doing? Presenting God's word. We're supposed to tell you what it says. Show you how it affects your life and show you how to use it and you're going to find more ways to use it But you are coming here to be equipped with his word and shown how to use it in every single life scenario God has called you not me alone all of us you included to go into the fight for him You are carrying the truth of the gospel salvation protects your mind the shield moves to the place that you need to to endure the attack from the enemy the belt of truth does not come off his righteousness drapes over you and when you get to eternity he sees spotless even though underneath you and i both know none of us are we are prepared with the message of the gospel with the preparation of the gospel of peace that are our shoes and we have a sword to go do work for him the goal is not to kill folks the goal is not to nail them between the eyes and tell them what a wretched piece of trash they are the goal is not to be like get turned or burned sanctified or french fried that's it you know there's not that's not the goal The goal is to present the gospel and to come at the spirits that are trying to prevent them from hearing God's word and give them the gospel. You have been armed. You have been commissioned. It is time for us to move. We got to do it. I'm a little passionate about this because this all led to this moment. You've been equipped. You got defensive armor on. You've been made right standing with God. He's given you a shield. You can even use that for an offensive weapon at some points. But then he puts in your hand a sword. Sharper than any two-edged sword ever created. That gets down to the real reason. We do what we do. And exposes the work of the enemy in other people's lives. Please, use your sword for more than insulting other people on the internet. Don't pull that thing out and swing it in front of the camera. You're supposed to use it like this, not like this. I didn't mean to hit it. It was a <laughs> He's like, yes, get by it. So here's my question. Christians are known for many things. Everybody in this room went, ooh. Right? Are we known as people of Scripture? Are we known as people who know how to appropriately use the sword? And if someone doesn't know what the Bible says, Would they ever be able to read it and look at our life and go, that dude must read that book, that lady must read that book because how they act is in line with what is said right there. That's how we know. Are we doing that? Are we doing that because you have not been given the armor to be able to make it through life gently to the end and not rock the boat. You're supposed to take that armor, link with other believers, and move forward with his word as your guide, as your weapon, as a part of your defense. How do we take up the sword of the spirit? Last line of your notes. We consistently and intentionally Consistently and intentionally read, consume, and think about scripture. God's word must become our foundation for truth, our life standard, and the way we destroy the works of the enemy. Matt, I don't have two hours a day to just sit down and read the Bible, neither do I. Join the club. I don't even know if I can get through a whole chapter. Uh, That wasn't a prerequisite. It wasn't a requirement. Man, I can probably read five or six of those verses, and it's so profound to me. i got to stop right there. Then stop right there. Meditate on it. Think on it. Ask the Spirit of God who's living inside of you, how should I use this? How should I put this to practice in my own life and help me to remember this at the right time so I can communicate it to somebody else? You are not some weak, overmatched, overpowered group of people who come to church because you want to be a good community member. You are people who've been enlisted by your chief officer, Jesus himself, and equipped to go do his work. So if you're like, Matt, I'm not used to seeing you kind of go, "Woo!" you kind of went up a couple notches tonight. Yeah, the preacher came out of me tonight a little bit, my bad. I'm not really sorry. I hope you understand what God has given to all of us. To go do his work. And the majority of that work, that warfare, will not happen in this room. Do not suit up in your armor and shine it up and come in here to look real nice for everybody else and then go home and take it off. Take it off when you come in here. Woo! Woo! Need a little bit of refreshing. Cool. relationship, a gift from God, his word, prominence and foundation and serving him when we walk out the door. All right, going back at it. All right, if you need me, I'm here. I'll stand with you. Suit back up and go do your